Corinthians. And so, actually, what we're going to do tonight is slightly different. Rather than reading the passage all the way through and then preaching on it, I'm going to be weaving the passage into the sermon to try and sort of keep it fresh for us. Because I'm sure as we come to this story, many of us will have loads of preconceived ideas of, you know, who this woman is, what she's like, you know, what are perhaps some of Jesus' thoughts um, as he's speaking to them, and certainly what the disciples were thinking when they come back and they witness the scene between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. So we're going to try and create a blank slate today, um, and then we're just going to sort of preach through and read the passage at the same time. Now, I want us to imagine that we are at the theatres tonight. Now, a lot of us have dressed up for church, because that's what Presbyterians do. Um, And just imagine, you're going to the theatre, you've filed in, and you know, it's, it might be the globe, so we're all stood up, or it might be somewhere else where you have the luxury of seats. But everything is dark, and you're just waiting, giddy with anticipation of what's to come. And you hear the narrator speak out right from the start, and he says these words from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we're taken on this roller coaster ride as different people were brought out to talk about who Jesus is, who Jesus was. And actually, we meet the man Jesus who calls his disciples. We get to chapter 2, where Jesus transforms wine, uh, water into wine at a wedding party. And we see him become what the bridegroom should have been in the first place by providing the hospitality that the bridegroom should have given. In chapter 3, we see the man Nicodemus, the teacher of all Israel. He comes to Jesus at night in the darkness. And he speaks to Jesus. And by right, he should know what's going on. And yet what we see in that dialogue between Jesus And Nicodemus is that Nicodemus was spiritually blind. And now we're in our fourth scene. From the darkness, we kind of hear people shuffling all the stage stuff around. And, you know, I'm not exactly a huge theater buff, but I imagine this is what's going to happen now. Okay. Everything is dark. We see the spotlight shine. And it's a little, it's one of the signs that tells you where you are. And we see here in, in verse 5, don't we, that we are at a town called Sychar in Samaria. Now, for the really careful readers of the, of the Bible, well, you know, the, the really kind of, the, the guys who are really into theatre, they see this name 
And immediately their mind goes to Genesis, where Jacob buys a piece of land from Shechem in Genesis 30, in Genesis 33. And actually, the first story that comes into your mind is the fact that straight after Jacob buys this piece of land, the most horrific thing happens to his daughter. His daughter Dinah is raped by the prince of the land. And not only that, Jacob's sons, two of them, violent people, goes and basically massacres the entire tribe that that Shechem comes from. So that's kind of lurking in in the background as we see this place name. We see the next thing, the spotlight lights up the well in the middle of the stage. Now, again, if you're a careful reader of, of the Bible, the minute you see a well, you know romance is in the air. From Genesis, we know, don't we, that um, you know, in Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel at the well. Even before that, Abraham's servant, when he was looking for a bride for Isaac, meets Rebecca at the well. In Exodus 2, what do we see? We see Moses meeting his bride, Zipporah, at the well. The well in the Bible screams romance. And so our first expectation when we come to this scene is that this is going to be a love story. And not only that, what we see before is that John, as he's writing this this um, gospel, when he has John the Baptist exalting Christ, what's the one imagery that he chooses? He calls Jesus a bridegroom in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. You know, all of these things are just flashing up at us that this is going to be a love story. We don't know who's going to be in it yet, but these are expectations. We see the entire room light up. Okay, this is midday. Verse 7. It was the sixth hour. No, sorry, verse, verse, yeah, verse, verse 6. This is the sixth hour. This is midday. This is bright light everywhere. And what did we see in chapter 3? We saw Nicodemus coming in the night and he leaves spiritually blind. And so what are our expectations then when we come to this scene where we've got the name Sychar, we've got the well in the middle of the stage and we've got bright light all around us. This is going to be a romance story where people are spiritually enlightened and aware. And what a great contrast. And then we see Jesus at the well. And a woman from Samaria came to draw some water. Now, remember, at this point, the woman from Samaria knows absolutely nothing about Jesus. 
She's never met him before. She hasn't heard of him before. You know, completely unlike Nicodemus in chapter 3, who'd seen all kinds of signs that Jesus has done. This woman who comes to the well to draw water at midday has no idea who Jesus is. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? I mean, you know, ladies, you, you, actually, this is a really natural response, isn't it? If some strange man at the well asks you for a drink, you know, your, your instinct is to distance yourself. You know, just, just some strange guy asking for a drink. You don't want anything to do with him. You want to get away straight away. And and what we see here is where we have brackets straight after that line. And it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That particular line could just as easily be translated, indeed, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she's actually trying to to tell Jesus to go away. She's saying, look, you, you you should have nothing to do with me. You know, you're clearly a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, just, just go away. And then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and you would have given him and he would, and he would give you living water. And then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now again, remember, this woman knows nothing about Jesus. And so this random guy just tells her, oh, by the way, I've got some living water for you. You can imagine her response, can't you? She's like, oh, you know, you think you're all that, you know, you think you're really great, but I'm not buying any of it. You know, as I read this, one song just kept coming into my mind. You know, there, there was a song in the 90s um, by a band called TLC called No Scrubs. No? Anybody? No? I mean, basically, the, the entire song is, is these three women who sing about guys who are coming onto them and them not wanting anything to do with them. And, you know, these guys, these undesirable guys are just, in their words, scrubs. And, you know, when I, when I read this, this is what I'm thinking. You know, this woman is just thinking, oh, you know, Jesus, he's, he's, he's a scrub. Yeah, he's a nobody. Why should I bother listening to him? What's the point of all this? And then she kind of challenges him, doesn't he? Uh, you think you're all that? Oh, but you know, you, you can't possibly be greater than our father Jacob. You know, he's the one that gave us this will. I mean, she's effectively saying, hey, "Look, you're saying you're all that. Prove it. Show me." And then Jesus said to her, verse thirteen. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. We'll have to come here to draw water. Now, that's a big shift, isn't it? In attitude, Jesus clarifies 
what it is he meant by living water. You know, previously, you know, living water could just be flowing water. And yet here, as Jesus clarifies that this is the living water that is, that gives eternal life, the woman's interest seems piqued. But she's still unconvinced. You know, at this point, we have a woman who has gone on a bit of a spiritual journey, haven't we? She's met Jesus, random guy, thinks that he's just boasting about himself. And then as she talks about, talks with Jesus, she starts to realize that actually there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. Now, in verses 16 to 19, we see how not only is Jesus not a scrub, but he's actually a prophet. And not just a prophet, he is the Messiah, the ultimate bridegroom that John spoke of. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now Jesus proves here, doesn't he, that he knows things about this woman that she has never revealed. That is Jesus showing this woman that actually there's something very special about him. He knows things that he shouldn't know because the woman hasn't told him. Now, Jesus asks her to go call her husband. So, clearly, this this kind of shows us definitely that even though the woman initially might have thought that Jesus was coming on to her, Jesus here proves to her that he isn't. You know, if you're coming on a woman, why would you ever ask to see her husband? Just wouldn't happen, would it? And so Jesus proves to this woman that he is an upright man worthy of her trust. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the ones you now have is not your husband. Now, you know, this one, this, this tiny couple of verses... Has, has has given us an absolute wealth of interpretation. And people have looked at these verses, and for the most part, they have concluded that this means that this woman was extremely immoral. Now, she has had five husbands, and she's currently living with a man who's not a husband. And, you know, in, back in those days, that would have been totally shameful. But I'm not so sure that she was as shamed as... So many commentators say she is. I mean, for one, we know for a fact, you know, as we go later on, that she goes back to the village and she tells people what had happened to her and they all believe her. You know, that, that's not what happened to people who were publicly shamed. You know, far more likely, in my opinion, is that this is far from being just an immoral woman. She's actually just a really unfortunate woman. She's had five husbands who, for whatever reason, have perhaps died, 
have deserted her, have divorced her. And actually, she's young enough for her to assume that Jesus is interested in her for marriage. So this probably, these five marriages, probably happened in a really, really short space of time. Now, if you're in that particular boat, would you not feel reticent about entering into another marriage? You know, far from being simply an immoral woman, I think this woman deserves our sympathy. This woman deserves our respect. And just to say, you've had a really, really hard time of it, haven't you? And actually, does she need our condemnation? Does she need us to say to her, you're a immoral woman? I don't think she does. Because actually what we see from Jesus in their response, in, 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 their, in their dialogue to come is that he, he doesn't batter her with this stuff. Instead, he points her to the meaning of true worship and the fact that she needs to know him for who he is. I wonder if that just gives us some idea of how we should approach these questions as we talk to people. But anyways, as Jesus proves himself to be an honorable man by asking her to call her husband, as Jesus reveals himself to be a prophet of God by saying to her, by, by telling her things that he shouldn't know because she has, she hasn't told him. Then the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the woman meeting this prophet wants to take full advantage of the fact that he's there. She's interested in spiritual things and she's asking him, look, you know, we've got this historic disagreement between the Samaritans and the Jews. You know, what do you make of all this? And Jesus tells her the truth, that the Samaritans do have it wrong, you know, because they worship things that they do not know. And the Jews have it right because they worship the ones they do know. But actually, both people have it wrong because true disciples of God worship in spirit and in truth. Here, Jesus reveals himself to be far more than just a prophet. He's the one who is able to give God's word definitively. He's already showing her insights into who he might be, that he is the Messiah, God incarnate. And I think the woman kind of knows it. But at the same time, she's also unwilling to just say, oh, you know, you're right, I'm wrong. Let's leave it at that. No, no. So this is a really interesting response. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, how often, actually, do we end up having this conclusion to a conversation with other people? How often do we end up with this um, sort of end of, or end of a conversation where we just kind of go, well, you say one thing, I say another, let's just agree to disagree. 
You know, is it tomato? Is it tomato? Is it potato? Is it potato? Let's just agree to disagree. And, you know, let, let's just wait until a greater authority comes and tells us what the truth is. But what she didn't know was that the greatest authority is already before her. As Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And now we see this woman deep in thought as the disciples come back. Now, the disciples, they say, they say they're marveling at the fact that he was talking with a woman, but nobody commented on it. And then verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. This woman, you know, we're told right at the start that she went at midday to draw water. And yet, as the disciples come back, the woman leaves without a water jar to go back to her village. And then she talks to these people and says to them, this man has told me all that I have ever done. And crucially, when she says, can this be the Christ? Now, in, in the English here, um, it's not so obvious. I mean, there's, there's clearly some doubt. You know, she's not saying this is the Christ. But actually, you know, this is probably better translated. Um, you know, surely this can't be the Christ, can it? You know, there's far more uncertainty than certainty in what she says here in the Greek. Um, and so what we, see, what we see here is a woman who, at the initial meeting of Jesus wants nothing to do with him. And then as their dialogue progresses, she becomes more interested. And she realizes that he is something special. She doesn't quite know who he is yet. And at the end of this dialogue, what we see is that she's at this place of uncertainty and hesitancy, but she knows she has some vague idea of who Jesus might be. So, and, And so it's so far then, we've seen these, these reactions of the woman. And then, you know, if you imagine with me, the woman goes off. She tells these people, and then, okay, we're, we're kind of moving from a sort of theater analogy to a, to, a, to a cinema one now. But the camera kind of pans over to these disciples. Um, and it's really interesting, isn't it, that we, we have this bridegroom motif that was in the earlier part of John. And then we've got John 3, where John the Baptist proclaims that, you know, Jesus is the bridegroom. And then you've got this romance scene at the well, where he's clearly calling this woman to follow him. Now, you know, we'll we'll talk about this some more, but obviously he's not talking to her to join him in a physical marriage. Now, what's going on is he's revealing himself to be the spiritual bridegroom, one that she would be spiritually united with. But so what we've got here is this bridegroom motif that is coming through the whole of, you know, these early parts of John. And then we've got a feast. 
when, when, after the disciples had come back. In verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to him, said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Do you not say there are yet four months and comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. We sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So we we almost have here a sort of a a mashing of a, 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 a harvest feast and a wedding feast, don't we? You know, we've got this first part where we've got the woman at the well who encounters Jesus. And then we've got this idea of Jesus' spiritual food is doing the will of the Father. And then we've got this scene of the, the, the field that are white onto harvest. And then the, the camera kind of pans again to the Samaritans in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. The field is being harvested, and the bride and the bridegroom are coming together. And then they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These people come to faith. They become the bride who joins the bridegroom of Jesus. They partake in the living water that is Jesus. And we see how the woman's hesitant faith then leads to the faith of many who comes to Jesus through this. Now, what does this all mean for us then? What does this mean for us tonight? I mean, the first thing we've got to wonder is, so where, where are you at spiritually? You know, maybe this is the sort of first time you've come to church, and the only reason you came was because your parents or your girlfriend or boyfriend or you know, a friend of yours has kind of dragged you to come to church. And you've had to sit through half an hour of singing and praying and then, uh, 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 what some guy talking from the Bible, and you're just thinking, wow, I have way better things to do with my time on a Sunday evening than be here. And maybe you're like that Samaritan woman right from the start, where she's saying, I don't want anything to do with this. But hopefully, as you've read the words and as you've heard about Jesus, maybe something about him is oddly attractive to you, and you want to hear some more. Maybe you're like the Samaritan woman in slightly later on, where her interests have peaked, and she just wants to know a bit more of who Jesus is. Or maybe, you know, you've been coming for a while, and 
Um, you, you're thinking these things through, and you can really see that you know, G- Jesus is a good person. You know, maybe you're even beginning to see that he is God. Maybe you're starting to understand that he is God who's incarnate, who came and died for our sins. Maybe you even know that as you come to trust and believe in him, you partake in the living water and that you have eternal life. Because when he died on that cross, he perhaps died for you. And that your sins are paid by him. And what you've got is a tentative faith towards him. And you're just working that out. You're seeing what that's like. Now, you know, for everybody in those three stages of faith, the thing here is to just come to Jesus and drink from that living water more and more, to come to know him more and more, to know that grace more and more. Maybe the thing is, you, you, you may even be further away from that. You've heard these things, you can see how it's attractive, And yet you can't bring yourself to come to Jesus because you're thinking, I'm too bad. I'm too ashamed of all the things that I've done. Then maybe you need to look at this passage again and look, Jesus does not hammer this woman for her sins. Instead, he says, come and drink, drink from the living water that I can give you. Whatever sins you may have committed, whatever sins that may be in the deep, dark recesses of your soul, the sins that you dare not say to anyone else, you can bring them to Jesus. And he promises to forgive you if you have faith in him. Or maybe you're like the disciples You've walked with Jesus for a while. And, you know, you, you, your faith is strong. You can, you can feel yourself growing in faith each and every day. There are actually two really interesting lessons here, actually. Well, it's only really one. Is that sometimes we need to learn to shut up. You know, the, the disciples come back from uh, gathering food. They see Jesus and this woman. And this woman clearly having an encounter with Jesus. And they say nothing. You know, sometimes we need to get out of the way so that, you know, people can have their own encounter with Jesus. Now, that's not to say we don't do evangelism. That's not to say, you know, we don't share our faith with other people. But when all of that is done, sometimes people just need to get to know Jesus for themselves. And we should just leave them with the Gospels. Really let them see who Jesus is for themselves. And maybe just let up the steam a little bit. But actually, I also think here we have a really particular application to um, our, our sort of romantic lives. Now, perhaps you're single here today. Now, perhaps you struggle with it um, on a fairly regular basis. Um, perhaps you wake up every morning and you, you ache to wake up next to somebody else. Or perhaps, you know, you're, you're more accustomed to the fact that you're single. Maybe rather than a, a, an ache every morning, it just becomes a sort of low-level dull ache in, in, in the background. 
And it only really rears its ugly head when, you know, you need to organize, um, you know, some holidays with your single friends who may have already then, by then, met somebody on the internet or whatever. And you're just like, oh, you know, now I have to find a new group of friends to go on holiday with. What we have here, I think, is a really unique opportunity to speak into this. And that's, you know, look, look at the way Jesus deals with her in the love story by the well. You know, it is, of course, not a physical union between Jesus and this woman. That, that's clear enough from the text. But what we have here is his offer of a spiritual union for her to drink deeply from him. And that, that is far more satisfying than any physical union in a marriage could give you. And actually, even for the people who are married, you know, so often our spouses prove to be disappointing. I'm pretty sure I disappoint Julia on a daily basis. And actually, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? The idea that we might disappoint our spouse, or even we might find our spouse disappointing. You know, that, that's a lot of pressure to be working with. But here, again, we have Jesus pointing us to him as the ultimate source of fulfillment. That living water, if we drink it, we will never thirst again. So two things. You know, as we realize that we are, we ourselves are disappointing brides to Jesus who is perfect, we can have grace to our spouse who may disappoint us. But more than that, as we live the pressure of disappointing our spouses, we can point them to Jesus who would ultimately fulfill them. Isn't that a great privilege that we have in our married lives? Isn't that, isn't that a great application from this, from this love story that we've seen? And so what we've got here is we've got a story, a romance story of a woman and a man whose union is of a, a spiritual union, one that is far more fulfilling than any physical union can give. You know, we have the life that comes from drinking the living water from Jesus that gives us all that we need. But actually, we just need to end with some final thoughts on who Jesus is. Now, remember, right at the start, I pointed out that at this place, Sychar, in Genesis 33 we see some terrible things happen. We see the rape of Dinah, and we see the massacre of an entire tribe. Jesus is nothing like those people. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He's the giver of living water. He brings eternal life. So far from the bridegroom, that simply goes out and takes and violates the one who he supposedly loves. Jesus is gentle, and he cares for us, and he's approachable. He doesn't hurt us. And unlike Jacob's violent sons who massacred an entire tribe, Jesus gives living water that gives eternal life.
what an amazing Christ we have. Let's pray.